Hello, and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. Hello and welcome to the LUXR podcast. This is episode nine. I'm Skander. I'm on my own today, but we have Dr. Rebecca Whittle, who is a human geographer lecturer at the Lancaster Environment Center at Lancaster University. Rebecca, hi. Hi, Skander. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for coming. Um, so we'll get straight into it. I've heard that you run a community garden and it's just been approved to start again after this uh, COVID crisis, or at least this first COVID crisis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, um, we run a community garden here called um, Scotch Quarry Park. People can find us on Facebook if they're mm -hmm. interested. Um, it's here How in do you Lancaster. Spell that? In a, uh, S. Oh, I'll, I'll put it in the chat, shall I? And then you can put it in the. Is that yeah, good? Yeah, sure, sure. I'll put it in the description um, of the episode. Just, yeah. So it's um, it's basically, um, yeah, we're quite near to Williamson Park in Lancaster. So Williamson Park is mm -hmm. obviously the famous park that everyone knows about. And Scotch Quarry yeah. um, has a very similar history, actually. They were both quarries. Um, but I guess that Williamson Park kind of got the patronage of Lord Ashton and Scotch Quarry didn't. So it's it's mm -hmm. kind of, it's a bit of a hidden local gem. A lot of people don't know about it. All right. Was Williamson Park a, qu a quarry park? A quarry, yeah, I mean. Yeah, oh, really? Wow. Too. I didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. And there was an observatory there and all sorts of, there's all sorts of crazy things that happened yeah. in Williamson Park. That <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Scotch Quarry um, was a quarry and then it was kind of like a bit of a, um, not quite a landfill site, but they used to tip like waste from the local pottery there. So that was one okay. of the things actually when the community garden started is that we can't grow food in the soil because the soil is, a lot of it's contaminated. So we've oh, got like right, raised okay. beds. Well, yeah. Even if it's, um, you said there's a pottery uh works even if it's just earthworks is it is it fine if is it does it not think, is it not fine for the earth i think it was it was basically so i think it wasn't the pottery waste i think it had it was also um filled in a bit with like fly ash from power stations so that's the stuff right, that's okay. got yeah like heavy metal stuff i think yeah um so yeah we grow in raised beds um and yeah it's a really nice like little garden it's it's we're really fortunate actually that it's been um it was kind of designed along permaculture principles to be low maintenance so that means mm. that like during covid and we've not been able to run sessions it's actually looked after itself really nicely um oh, that's nice, with yeah. a few like yeah local people kind of popping in and helping and stuff like you know just mm. as individuals um but yeah we've got all sorts of other we've got like a bee bank there for like for kind of ground listing oh, really? bees and a wildflower mm. meadow and yeah it's nice that's nice. Can anyone come in and visit just to kind of take a walk through or? Anyone can visit. Yeah, absolutely. And anyone can take food from the That's garden. Um, yeah. Right. Okay, great. I'll, I'll definitely have to, to pop by when I'm back in Lancaster because our, our graduation got moved to December. So I'll, oh. <laughs> I'll come by around December for it. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's great. And so the council has given you uh, the green light to, to kind of go back in and, and start your work again. Um, Absolutely. What, what was the the original intent behind this community garden? What did you guys want to get out of it? So the project, um, it wasn't me who started it. It was a Transition City Lancaster project um, called Fruity Corners. And they actually, um, they um, created community gardens. I think there were four actually um, in different parts of Lancaster. So the idea was that, um, especially like around Scotch Quarry, a lot of the houses around there, as you probably know, don't have kind of back gardens. They've just got like a concrete yard or something. Um, okay, yeah. So the idea was that it's it's about making fruit and 
well, fruit, food generally, but fruit especially kind of uh, freely available in public spaces so that anyone mm -hmm. could just walk past and pick. Um, yeah, so that was the idea really. And we were, we were one of those, um, we were one of the four sites that sort of, um, that were started. So yeah, I think, I think it started in 2011. So we've been going like nearly 10 years now. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, we just got involved, like um, my husband and I, we lived on the street, like next door and um, Simon who started it put a flyer through the letterbox like looking for volunteers so we just used to go along and it was just really nice watching this because it was just a square of tarmac mm -hmm. like before we started and so yeah watching like putting the beds together and then watching like doing all the planting and we had a really great uh, permaculture garden designer called Jennifer who sort of helped us do the planting plan um, all right. Nice. And yeah, like I say, that's really paid off now because if this had been yeah. sort of like a traditional allotment, it would have just been impossible during this time, yeah. I think. Permaculture has always been something I've personally been interested in, um, especially since I, I watched this uh, doc really great documentary, actually. We're going to do uh, a film review um, because we, we've started doing these as well since it was a little bit difficult to get guests um, during the marketing period. So we decided mm -hmm. to make a few episodes just around... Um, film or book reviews around environmental films, environmental books. And there's this film called um, Tomorrow. It's called Demain in French. Uh, oh, I've tomorrow. heard about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've really, really it, great, great film, super uh, positive as well. Um, and I feel like I've heard of this Fruity Gardens thing um, through it because um, I, I don't remember exactly. I think it was like called Rebel, Rebel Cities or Rebel Town, something like that. And it, they basically went around the UK and looked at these two women that started this project to take over um, parts of, of a city in the UK and plant food sort of randomly wherever <clears throat> there was space. So instead of having random spaces that were just empty, they would mm -hmm. build these sort of grow your own food boxes. And, you know, it, it acted as a, as a way to get the community to kind of link up a little bit because people would come and tend to the garden and talk to each other. Um, and at the same time, it would be near sort of hotspots of the city, like near, for example, the police station or yeah. near like the theater and, and things like that. Um, is that kind of the same idea that you guys had as well with this? Definitely. And I think, you know, I mean, I guess, yeah, it, it gets, as you, as you mentioned there, like there's a lot of examples of people doing this kind of thing all over the world. So I guess the incredible edible movement would be a really good example of that. Oh, there you go. Of, I think that's, I think that's yeah, the name that's of the it, incredible edible. Yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly. So that's that's very much, you know, kind of, I guess, inspired this approach. Um, and, you know, broader than that, if you obviously there's kind of guerrilla gardening, which is not necessarily specifically about edibles, but it's about, you know, like you can do seed bombs, you can kind of plant for pollinators. So there are some really mm -hmm. nice um, photos online of like, you know, where people have done it on the, you know, the on a roundabout or something, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, someplace yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily want to grow food, but it yeah, it's nice for, for bees and things like that. So yeah, and there's all that space, so might as well use it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how how's your 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 role as a as a human geographer as a as a lecturer kind of been affected and affected this project that you've taken on? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, initially, initially, when I start, when I first started doing, when I first got involved in the community garden, um, I was just, I was a researcher at Lancaster, so I was on temporary contracts. So basically, I worked on other people's projects, and I wasn't paid to work on food at that point in time. Um, okay. But I guess I've always been really interested in food and passionate about food, like some of my earliest kind of nice memories are helping my dad grow stuff in the garden. Um, mm -hmm. 
So, and yeah, around this time as well, some friends had invited us to share their allotment with us. So we kind of got into gardening in like a massive way. And I just found it like quite therapeutic as well. And I, you know, when you're on temporary contracts, you know, you, you kind of have this phase when your contract nearly comes to an end and you think, oh, I'm going to be unemployed. What am I going to do? And yeah. there were so many times that I just thought about leaving academia and becoming a farmer. And, you know, I still haven't kind of quite discounted that. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was. So I guess. Um, so initially it started off as an outside of work thing. But then, um, like I said, like my PhD was was about food, actually, originally. So it was about the links between food and tourism. And then. You know, even when I, I went through years when I wasn't sort of able to work on it kind of professionally, I kind of still kind of kept that alive, I guess. And and now mm-hmm. that I have a permanent contract, I am able to like I'm really lucky I have much more flexibility in what I work on. So I've been able to bring food back in. And also like it's really been one thing that's been really important to me has been um that I work part time as well. So I'm only three days a week. Um okay. Which I did initially. I did it initially. I did it because um, because I had a baby to to be like to be able to spend more time with my yeah, son. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, even now that he's at school, I find the part time thing works really well for me because it enables me to do sort of kind of volunteering activism stuff that I wouldn't mm-hmm. have time for if I was full time. So the community garden, there, there's sort of like yeah. an overlap. It's I don't know whether it's it's part work, part not, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. good. I get inspiration from both. <laughs> No, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah, I I really wonder in sort of a theoretical way, especially how how it's affected. Like you, you must have done a lot of you know work and studying and such around food as a human geographer. But I wonder how that theory kind of, um, especially how that theory hit a sort of wall, maybe with the practical, mm-hmm. because I feel like that's what usually happens is that we have yeah. a certain idea of how things are in theory. And then when we actually go to the practical, you know, we actually start garden and such. Um, we have sort of different ways of, of thinking about it. This is kind of, I, this, I, I guess, relates to our episode with um, David Tyfield in which we discussed uh, phrenesis and how, how, yeah. you know, we can have a, a sort of idea of, um, of what something is in theory but then the actual living practiced kind of wisdom of it is completely different did you find that in your, in your work absolutely yeah and i think you know I, yeah i've i've had so, i mean david's been a real sort of inspiration to me in all of this as well as as you know kind of mm-hmm. nigel clark andy jarvis like others as well but um you know it's i think we all of us find that there is something very definite about well, for me, certainly, there's always been something about the actual practice of engaging with something. And, you know, like every time I'm in that garden, I'm, you know, I'm, I can write books about, you know, I can write articles about gardening, I can kind of theorize mm-hmm. about plants, but actually, when I'm out there doing it, I'm kind of, it gives me another lens to reflect on it through like the two, the two kind of, without those two things, I just think it wouldn't be kind of, I don't know, it's kind of, I think, I guess, traditionally, and it was actually interesting, when I first started doing my PhD, back then, geography, or certainly the the kind of department as it was then, there was kind of quite a separation between theory and practice. So you were either like really empirical, in which case you didn't sort of do theory, or you're really theoretical, and that meant that you didn't do, you know, the (laughs) empiricism stuff. Um, But I think, you know, now that's just, I feel like that's, for me, the practical stuff is a real, another like theories kind of tools and they go you know they go together exactly like i mean david's much better at explaining it than i am yeah it's quite silly to to make the division between the two i mean they should be informed by each other it's it's uh exactly like that's quite a natural conclusion to 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 take from that um exactly did you find any any sort of 
issues with local government systems or, or any like um, any resistance from from legislative authorities? Well, I mean, thankfully, again, I'm, this is where I'm really grateful to, you know, Simon and Transition City who sort of set up the project because I think that and the, you know, the incredible edible movement and stuff, I think they did a lot of that sort of, um, you know, that that figuring out how to work with local authorities thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and now certainly here in Lancaster, my experience has been that we've got a really quite a good relationship with the council, actually, and they're very supportive and we kind mm-hmm. of have, um, yeah, we have like a management agreement with them. So they, yeah. Um, it's all it, yeah basically it was it was and yeah like i said i didn't have to do too much of this legwork myself but it's right right now they're generally i mean i guess you know with austerity as well um they obviously have less money and that you know and capacity to do things so mm-hmm. often they're really happy for community groups to do stuff but obviously they have to yeah. be they have to be sure that it's not going to kind of start and then be like neglected and you know will cause a problem or so we mm-hmm. basically we just um if we have an idea for a new project we just kind of get in touch with them and say oh we're thinking of doing this is it all right and generally they say yes but can you just think about this you know just to make sure that yeah so yeah we um we, we chat now and you know they really try and support us with um yeah with sorting out some of the practical sort of like legislative side of things um mm-hmm. but yeah it seems to work pretty well that's good and j- just to get an idea of it i guess um how how big is it and sort of what kind of things you grow and you know in what numbers so i get a better idea of it yeah that's a good that's a good question so we've got um I mean, it's kind of expanded over time so sort of like every year a new mm-hmm. element has been added to it um so oh, i'm not very good at like there's i mean it's it's probably i'm trying to think like in total the growing area might be like the size of for example like half a tennis court maybe just to give sort of an idea okay um but and we and most of the planting most of it is perennial which is kind of along the permaculture principles so we have Mm -hmm. um and we try and grow in layers to make use of the space Mm -hmm. so we've got like um I mean, I know that Edible Campus actually has got like loads of examples of this kind of planting as well, but we've got like fruit trees as like the top layer and then fruit bushes and then kind of things like herbs and strawberries in the, um, you know, and salads and stuff in the in the kind of ground layer. Um, okay. well. Yeah, and actually, that's something I want to ask as well. Like, what I mean, I guess you, you sorry, you can you can continue and answer the, the what it's like question, but um, just I'm also wondering how how this idea of permaculture translates into practice basically if you can just expand on that because that's something that interests me personally a lot absolutely so yeah permaculture i mean it's something i mean i've never i would like to do you know you can obviously do like a permaculture design course you can kind of study it in more depth and i've I've not done that yet it's something i would really like to do um Mm -hmm. but it's basically and people often think that permaculture is about gardening and certainly that's like a very visible manifestation of it but it's actually like a design system so it's got there are um maybe 12 like permaculture principles so it's things like you're looking to like catch and store energy to be like zero waste so it's like a closed system you're looking to what's it always i'm um, like obtain a yield so like what and that can be mm-hmm. that can be very obvious so in a garden obviously there's a yield of like fruit or something but there's also that can also be in terms of like yeah i want to create more community around the site so people interacting is also sort of like a yield if you will mm-hmm. um yeah no, that's... so it's yeah it, and it basically for, for growers and for food i mean it's so it's brilliant. I mean, and you can kind of like, I find permaculture really fascinating on sort of like um, a sort of an ethical and a philosophical level as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a practical perspective, like say Jennifer, who helped us set the garden up, I mean, she's brilliant because 
you see so many people, especially now, actually, who are wanting to grow, like in COVID, it's like there's been a massive, like, I'm going to dig for victory <laughs> sort of thing going yeah. on. Um, but yeah, obviously, often people, if you haven't done it before, you might start out with something that's maybe quite hard to grow, or you might be trying to grow it mm. in the wrong place, or you, so basically, you can kind of be setting yourself up for failure, like quite yeah. easily. Just for, for our listeners, though, permaculture, would you describe it as um, sort of a way to, to grow different foods at the same time in the same space that will interact with each other in a, in a positive way? That, yeah so that's so that's a that's a what you're talking about there is i think what we call like a forest garden which is a yeah it's right. definitely a sort of the style of permaculture gardening so mm-hmm. yeah it's that principle like we talked about the growing in layers which is obviously like maximizing your use of space and it's kind of also yeah it's t- it's totally the opposite of a monoculture so you're looking for the plants mm-hmm. to kind of be able to interact with each other um and it's really interesting so a lot of these systems like you know quite often plant scientists might look at it and be like oh but you're not going to get very much potatoes out of that so you think well no mm-hmm. but i'm also getting i'm not just getting potatoes i'm getting apples i'm getting salads i'm getting herbs i might be getting some firewood yeah. as well like you know so all these different yeah, yeah. um multiple yields from from the same so yeah it's it's very yeah and the ecology and stuff of it as well yeah 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 i, I remember from the from that documentary um tomorrow uh the the yield um the yield per sort of hectare um in in permacultures is just so much higher than monocultures actually especially in the long run because apparently it's much better for the earth as well in terms of Mm -hmm. um the monocultures can tend to to take out of the earth a lot of nutrients and not really give much back in which is why a lot of the time we have to add things to the earth um but I, i don't know for me it just sounds like something much closer to nature so much closer to to real life i mean there there are no monocultures on earth everything is exactly. a permaculture exactly and that's one of the you know one of the key principles of permaculture is observe and interact so that was exactly where it came from is like you know permaculture the people who kind of in, they, they looked at the natural world and went well you don't see a monoculture in you don't see bare soil you know you see so yeah. it's like how can we how can we get and I think this is a this is one real this is one thing that irks me a lot in terms of when people talk about, you know, some people dismiss the role of kind of of small scale local growing and kind of these things and they you know. Right. Um, well, the the I, I mean, one point that, that I thought when you said this was that um, actually that's that's a false statement in a way because the most of the food that we eat is uh, the overwhelming majority is uh, grown in small scale farms. I, I remember absolutely. this from from uh i don't know if you know if you've heard of him uh, olivier de chuter he's a uh, yes, belgian yeah. yeah he's actually from my hometown so he's our a bit of nice. our local hero um he was <laughs> un special rapporteur for food safety i think yep. something like that and yep. um i remember he he was in this documentary but also sort of in other things he's been an active uh, extinction rebellion member as well um he he warned that this idea of of big agro um sort of farming that we have to have massive fields with huge machines or else we'll never be able to feed the world is just simply false because i think i don't want to misquote him but i think it was something around three quarters of our food is grown by small-scale farmers yeah absolutely yeah i've heard like 70 percent, something like that yeah definitely definitely mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and yeah those so, are whole ideas of the multiple yields that you get from a land and when you think about as you say that monoculture like constantly requires inputs you know and you're kind of all the time the soil is becoming depleted and yeah mm-hmm. it's very dependent on fossil fuels and stuff whereas 
what we're looking you know at the community garden i mean we we basically we buy in mushroom compost once a year just because we can't quite generate enough compost on site yeah. but that's it you know well, something that could <laughs> be really interesting yeah. to look at is is having compost uh, brought in from lancaster maybe actually from lancaster Absolutely. uni especially we've Absolutely. been trying to to get the uni to to accept a compost bin but it's, it's been <laughs> really difficult i mean we have yeah. what i think we have one compost bin um at yeah. the uni and it's in trial apparently it's infested with rats as well so it's yeah they're really not having a good time with it <laughs> no um, i know composting gets yeah can get quite yeah people get worried about obviously yeah and it does have to be you know like you do have to think a bit carefully about rats and stuff but it is yeah definitely you can um i mean our mushroom compost we're lucky actually there's a farm i think it's the same place that the eco hub gets it from actually in clay the hill okay. um so there's a there's a mushroom farm like quite close to lancaster um so yeah there's a guy there he'll just come and drop drop you off a trailer load and it's really good for the soil um i guess that was what i was going to say actually is that people think when people think about um you know going but like people often think of it as going backward you know they think oh we're going mm -hmm. back to like peasant agriculture which is really backbreaking and you know loads of people died and it's like yeah that's not that's not what we're aiming for like this is a this is a about getting nature to work for you you know working with nature yeah. so you actually yeah. so there's you know a lot of this stuff about like no dig and the permit it's it's about less labor you know which i guess the community garden has demonstrated during this time actually like there's work to set it up but if you've mm -hmm. thought carefully about the design system behind it you can actually be getting quite a lot of yields without um you know yeah. without so yeah we don't we never dig that garden you it's know, a smarter we, we way to work i mean there's no exactly. two ways around it <laughs> it feels like exactly. like we're the sort of big big agriculture way of doing things is trying to sort of force something into being um exactly. that's just going to have a, a major major negative consequences and and you know these sort of permaculture small gardens are, are more trying to to be smart about it. it it makes sense and i think you highlight well this um sort of this dichotomy that you then talk about actually in one of your papers right on the faroe islands uh, about mm. this idea of a, a binary way of thinking between um big agriculture and small-scale farming and how um, those two can work together is that right absolutely absolutely so that that paper that was um that's elizabeth who um her project elizabeth olsen who's a phd student who's working with mm -hmm. myself and giovanni um she's brilliant and she's got um you know she's got a long history of kind of food activism as well and she's from the faroe islands so yeah her project has been looking at um sort of food sovereignty basically broadly um in the faroe islands and also sao tome and principe mm -hmm. and it's yeah so she's been like working with a lot of small farmers and you know but also of all different and obviously you know with those those kind of locations that i've just mentioned you've got tremendous kind of climatic and cultural variability and stuff as well so i think that's mm -hmm. the other real thing to highlight is that actually you know again this is a this is perhaps a bit of a characterization but if we look at say um industrial farming throughout the world it probably looks quite similar like you can recognize you know it'll be using probably the same chemicals the same machinery like in very different places but if we look at for example what what food sovereignty, what sustainable, what local farming might look like in say the Faroe Islands and Sao Tome and Principe, it would, it would look quite different in both of those places because it's it's kind of like, um, if it's kind of designed well and supported, it's obviously an emergent response to the local kind of climate, ecology, culture, all of those things. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of tradi interesting traditions around food in both of those places as well. And yeah, um, I've not, I've not actually, I've, I've not visited any of those places I would kind of like to at some point, yeah. you know, um, 
but yeah, it's certainly really interesting hearing Elizabeth like talk about them, and I've learned a yeah, lot from her. Yeah, I guess they're they're I guess like you say they're informed by their own contexts. Um, Definitely, we can we yeah this idea I think of of universalizing things um, is I, I feel misguided you know, because like like you're saying Sao Tome will have a different geographical and and human even context than than uh, than the Faroe Islands and uh, so. So what exactly does this sort of farming look like, for example, in the Faroe Islands? I don't know if you've had the chance to kind of see it in the research. So, yeah, I think, well, certainly from Elizabeth would give a, a, better, a much better, obviously, characterization of this than me because, because she's local and she, she's immersed in the place. But so there's a lot of um, I think one of the things that's very interesting about the Faroe Islands is that um, kind of obviously commercially in terms of like the export and the, the economy like um fishing is really big so there's like a big um you know and certainly the um that's a big kind of earner for the for the government as it will if you will um sort of like large-scale fishing um but there's also kind of coexisting alongside that there's um quite a lot of small fisheries as well and then um, that sort of like maybe use more traditional practices. Then there's also um, a big tradition of sheep farming as well, mm. um, and on the sort okay. of on the um, the landscape. But also some there's also quite a lot of um, what you've got obviously going on in well Scandinavia is the, the whole sort of the new Nordic food movement, which is and there's been um, so there's quite a lot of interest as well in kind of growing um, growing fruit and vegetables and this, this sorry this new nordic food movement i, I haven't heard about it what, can you can you yeah, explain so it? it's a big it's a big thing um i think it's so again it's not something that um there'll be people listening to this that'll be much more knowledge about this than me as well but it's um it's been there's a quite a lot of chefs um from the, these sort of um yeah the nordic regions kind of generally that have it's again and sort of a reinvention i suppose of kind of traditional um food practices and ways of eating so it might be things like for example um salting like fish for example to pre preserve it in the winter there's a lot of emphasis on sort of foraged berries so there's um i did once i once went to this is quite a few years ago but i went to copenhagen for a conference and they put on like a bit of a they had a buffet that was a bit of a bit of this so there would be like um I think like sea buckthorn there are sort of some very you know there's a lot of foraging and wild berries right. and so it's it's kind of it's it's being put forward as a diet that's very sustainable because it's kind of like drawing on traditional um food practices and also like locally available foraged food but it's also um kind of people promote the health benefits of it because it's yeah again it's um mm -hmm. quite a lot of uh yeah obviously nutrients and um yeah fresh stuff and omega-3 and all these yeah again i've, I've not looked into it yeah. enough but it's it's a thing <laughs> so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no that, that's interesting i hadn't heard of that um hmm. I'll, I'll definitely i'll definitely try and well maybe we can find someone for the for the podcast who specifically has uh kind of studied that because that sounds really interesting um yeah. but about this foodscape um as you as you put it what do you think uh, a sort of mix between what you call the capitalist global food system and the alternative local food system. What, what does that look like in mm. terms of like practical? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, this is where it gets really interesting because, and I guess, um, you know, kind of one approach that sort of inspires me quite a lot in relation to this. And I think it's in that paper that, you know, Elizabeth mainly, um, Elizabeth wrote um, is mm. that, we, we talk a lot about um, sort of, you know, Gibson Graham's kind of ice community economies iceberg. So it's this, this idea that um, actually 
you know what we think of and and in yeah in sort of in talking about food quite a lot of the time people separate and you know i do it all the time in talking as well as sort of i've just been doing it now the alternative and the mainstream yeah. but actually they're all part of the same thing you know they're all if so we're kind of they they exist together and it's like all about um you know again it's easy to draw because you can draw the iceberg and you can sort of see all the different elements that are actually already part of that so i guess it's about and and certainly this is where um some of the work that I've been trying to do more locally with um, Food Futures, our local kind of sustainable mm -hmm. food partnership. Um, so that is all about, I mean, looking at food here in North Lancashire, but trying to support, like we need to obviously support, it's not about saying, you know, conventional farmers are all bad because they're not, you know, they've just obviously been, that's just been the way that they've been, you know, the way they've been sort of supported to develop. But over time, obviously farming is gonna need to evolve to be, um, you know, more in tune with, um, you know with the environment and the yeah. local culture and, and so it's about it's about trying to I suppose like hybridize between the two a little bit if we can mm -hmm. um so yeah. like my, my colleague like Rachel Marshall who's here in Leck as well who's brilliant she's working on the um the N8 universities have got this agri-food program which is um yeah about sort of food and agriculture and yeah across I suppose like the northern the northern research intensive universities and um yeah we really would like to get a project where we try and bring farmers together so um farmers who are farming maybe in a more conventional way but also with those who are experimenting with new methods and you know just like hopefully by enabling those to talk and to sort of share practices and ideas and kind of brainstorm together without being like oh that's not i'm not that sort of farmer or i'm not you know mm -hmm. like it will enable sort of like practices and ideas to maybe cross fertilize a bit and people will yeah, hopefully helping yeah. Um, farmers with with the challenges that they face as well, rather than being like this is the way you should do it, which I think was how the um, you know I guess how the green revolution worked was like you should do this, but what a farmer should do is very different, obviously depending on their circumstances. Like that's yeah. you know themselves e economically, like their family, their environment. Like it could look really different from farm to farm. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, again, this this idea of universalization as a not always positive um <laughs> i want to maybe move on till we get to talk a little bit in detail as well about um your work on climate change as an issue of care um so we, we talked a little bit about this in our introduction call um you you said that you realized that um that climate change is an issue um well i guess there's not two way about it that it's an issue of care can you can you expand on that please a little bit yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess, yeah, what we were talking about before we started recording, obviously, was that, um, and I described a little bit of this already. So I found, as a, as a lot of, I guess, um, academics do as well, that, you know, after my PhD, which, like I say, was sort of about, was about food, like I worked on, I was always interested in sustainability. Like I didn't, I wasn't, you know, some people are always like, I'm only interested in one thing. But one of the reasons I did geography in the first place was because I'm interested in anything really to do with like people in the natural world. So I've been really lucky to work on like a range of projects so um yeah i worked obviously on um, my first job after my phd was working on a project um looking at people's recovery from the floods in hull um so i did some mm -hmm. stuff on flooding for a while um which is really interesting um then i worked on energy for a bit um what else have i yeah i've been doing like children's geographies like emotional geography stuff on parenting and, I, and you know i just had to like 
we talked about when you um you know when you apply for a job and you have to try and write a coherent narrative of yourself and for years yeah. i was like what is this coherent <laughs> narrative because to me it's all interesting and i'm just scattered over everything but yeah. i realized that actually the common thread that was running through all of those things was care actually um you know and now it now feels really exciting because I've now that I've kind of realized that I'm, I'm sort of able to explore that idea, I suppose, more through all these different projects and interactions that I have. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the, the, the book that's kind of, I mean, there's been a book that's really inspired me in this and I can kind of really recommend this to anyone listening who's mm-hmm. interested in climate change, a relationship between people and the environment, but it's called um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, it's just okay. fantastic it's about um she is um she's got native american she's from a native american community but she's also like a plant scientist and her work like looks at how traditional indigenous indigenous knowledge and kind of culture comes together with um you know how that she, she looks at that scientifically but also at mm-hmm. yeah so it's, it's basically about our relationships with nature and with the non-human world and with each other and it's about like reciprocity in that as well so this idea that it's not just you know now like we're saying obviously we really need to care for the earth more like that's obvious but let's look at the ways the earth, in doing that the earth also really cares for us so it's reciprocal mm-hmm. um and i've realized you know i guess i've come to a place in my work where and it it will sound like this will sound like a really kind of hippie-ish statement and I, I will confess I'm a massive hippie as well but it's um, like this whole I think it, you know now it makes sense like it makes sense yeah. intellectually that you know caring for ourselves caring for each other and caring for nature like the wider world it's all the same thing and if we mess up on any one of yeah. those then everything else will go out of kilter mm-hmm. so yeah yeah I think that this goes kind of contrary to the idea of uh, of nature as a Promethean uh, of our relationship with nature as Promethean right of of mm-hmm. us having this uh, total control over nature, which which I think we like to, we've been deluded into thinking we do, and I think we like thinking that we do. Um, and at the same time, I feel like any criticism of this Promethean relationship just gets you called a hippie in a sort of negative way. Even though I, you know, I'm, Absolutely. I think we're all there's all there's a, a little bit of hippie in all of us, so I don't think it's ne- uh, it's necessarily Absolutely. a bad thing. But um, no, I think it's important to recognize that that uh, we we are part of nature. Nature is part of us. We are we're not like the fact that we're conscious human beings hasn't really, in my mind at least, hasn't taken us out of the of of nature. It's just meant that we we realize where we are. It doesn't mean that we control yeah. what we are. I mean, or else you know, climate change wouldn't be such an issue. We would just say, oh, it's okay. We can we can fix it somehow but but uh, and and we can we can to some extent by by uh, adapting faster or or changing our practices but mm-hmm. i guess for me the the big this big idea of of climate change as care um is seems like a sort of next step in my own personal thinking at least as well mm-hmm. that's why i'm i'm quite interested in this um because like I said, the, I, I've realized the sort of intrinsic relationship between man and nature, but I guess I'm wondering, especially in what ways uh, you've seen that nature and man kind of have, uh, nature and, and humans have this uh, this intrinsic relationship yourself in, in your studies and your work, yeah, um, maybe absolutely. throughout your work on, on floods that you did with uh, Gordon, Professor Gordon Walker. Absolutely. So I can, t- I mean, I can talk, 
yeah i will i think flood is a really interesting one i can i guess the way the way that i would first explain it is through food actually and again it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with um you know in terms of for me the importance of like the practical of being able to kind of have time still to do kind of gardening and to mm -hmm. you know spend time with my son and all of this like i think initially i started out where a lot of academics would start out and i know david talks about this a lot in his in the podcast that he did with him um but you know i was seeing care maybe as a bit of a distraction so it's like oh if i didn't have to like do all this work like looking after my son and like sorting out the garden then i can get back to my serious work of like let's let's sort out climate change right, you know? yeah. but that's all that's all kind of that's really misleading because actually you know that's kind of implying that climate change is something over there that's so it's kind of it's also it's quite disenfranchising because that's like well i need to you know impact on these policy makers and they're not listening to me and that's you know and, and yeah. yes we need to impact on policy makers for sure but when you start looking through a different lens at kind of what's going on you know, I, I literally went, well, what happens if we stop? And actually it was Andy Jarvis, I think, that said to me, he was like, why are you thinking about care as a distraction? Why isn't it, you know, and I thought, you know, and then I went and so during, this is a, this is perhaps a good example, but um, right before lockdown, our lockdown actually started a little bit earlier than some people's because I think we had COVID, you know, we realized that it was when the government said, okay, anyone with symptoms like stay at home. And, mm -hmm. and my husband was like, we all had caught, we'd had these horrible coughs and we just thought, well, it can't be COVID because we've not been near anyone that's, you know, but anyway, we realized they hadn't mm -hmm. controlled it, feeling yeah, pretty yeah. rubbish. <laughs> so at home, but it was spring, right? It was spring and we've got this garden. We're really lucky. We've got a garden that we wanted to spend time in. And so when I was feeling really yucky with COVID and, and I, the news was going bonkers and I was just like, this is terrible. Like the world's going to end. And yeah, there was all obviously climate change like layered on top of that, just catastrophe after catastrophe. And I just went back to, okay, what can you do today to like look after yourself, look after your family, look after your neighbours? And, and I spent a lot of time in my garden, like just gen gently kind of tending to the plants and kind of, and I realised that, you know, a lot of that stuff that was going on in the garden, I wasn't doing it, you know, I was facilitating that, but it was the plants mm -hmm. themselves that, you know, it was springtime, they were kind of, and I noticed things, I was like, oh, there's, you know, there was this amazing, like by, by some sort of like bizarre coincidence, um, we, we've, I discovered um, a kind of a wildflower growing in the garden that I hadn't planted and it turned out to be, I asked a friend who's a herbalist, it turned actually out to be a, a herb that is traditionally used for kind of for, as a cough remedy. So, you know, I, I didn't use it as that, but I thought, what's the, so yeah, when you, and, and at the time I was reading, um, I was reading Braiding Sweetgrass, which is all about, you know, how our relationship with the land, it's not just food, obviously it was medicine, it was fuel, it was like all of these things. And I realized that not only was I, so there were a few things that went on there. One was that I was re realizing that this isn't all about me, actually, that nature is acting all of the time, like all around us and its capacity to mm -hmm. heal is tremendous, actually. Um, I mean, that, on, that, on that point, actually, I can really recommend another person that's really inspired me, if people are listening that are interested in this, is Charles Eisenstein um, and his, uh, okay. his book, uh, like, well, he's got a great podcast himself, actually, called A New and Ancient Story. Um, mm -hmm. But he's written a book about climate change where he kind of, it's kind of quite controversial in some ways and that he says oh i don't think we should be talking about i don't think it's helpful to talk about you know if you talk about climate change because it does then quite quickly morph into oh but i can't possibly do anything because like what about china or what about america or mm -hmm. you know like it, it quite quickly morphs you into right. this space where and it's not you know it's not visible in in front of you and mm -hmm. but he says like if you look at like start from like local ecological restoration and stuff and that is something really tangible and you can kind of observe mm -hmm. yeah so we went, we're not the only actors and we right, can so kind of really like 
putting the the scale down a little and and turning the stage from a world stage until till here that's that's quite exactly. yeah that's that's pretty interesting I'll, you'll have to definitely give me the names of those two authors um because I, i'll i'll put them in the description of the of the uh, podcast and of cool. the video on youtube um no i, th I think that's uh that's quite pertinent and i think f I, i've been trying to think as well when i kind of realized that in, in some part myself as well and i think mm -hmm. for me it was definitely my i i think for everyone it's it's when you're confronted with it right when you're confronted yeah. with with the effects of climate change or sort of have this um you know what you call it in uh in english i think it's the breaking of the mirror or something you know this sort yeah. of boom moment uh where you realize something and i think it's when you either in in connection with nature or you're you're sort of realizing the connection between humans and nature and i think for me personally it was on my trips to the um on my trip to the cook islands um mm -hmm. like three four years ago now um i'd been talking to some of the some of the people from the island and they were telling me how they they went to we went to the beach and they showed me um where the sea was the lagoon was in like i think it was in 2006 mm -hmm. so like 10 years prior to my trip there compared yeah. to and then and also when they were children in like 19 i think it was like 1980s uh 10 mm -hmm. years ago and today and the differences were staggering i mean yeah the, they had lost you know dozens and dozens of meters of of uh, of of beach and yeah. and with that I mean that's that's their real life experience, and w alongside that comes the fact that as the water came into the island, um, it salinized uh, the land as well. So salt mm. kind of seeped into the land and made a lot of the smaller islands of the Cook Islands um, completely uninhabitable because they could not grow food on it. And you know the Cook Islands natives, especially, rely on growing their own food. They don't really yeah. they they have to import some but they do rely on growing most of their own food. So, so I think there's definitely something to be said about, about go going and finding that sort of, that, that moment of, of the mirror breaking for yourself, I think. Yeah. And I think you finding that in your garden is, I mean, it's great. It's, it's a, I think any, any revelation sort of that we have to ourselves is, is a great thing. Um, Absolutely. And so, so in, in terms of in the of the floods project i i just i guess i want to know how how that dimension of care for you um translated into the floods yeah definitely so i guess um i mean one of the things obviously that yeah that was such i was really felt really privileged to work on that project because it was just amazing on so many different levels um so there's a few things, you know, obviously many things that I could kind of say about care in relation to that. But I guess, you know, I mean, I suppose the starting point for the whole project really was that it was about looking at people's longer term recovery from the flood. So, um, you know, like obviously floods are, yeah, we get much more of them with climate change anyway, but they're very, they're, they're kind of pretty newsworthy events. So when, when, you know, when you get a flood, like the cameras turn up, don't they? And you've got like the army putting sandbags out and people being you got rescued. Boris Johnson coming along as well. 
oh yeah he's always yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> we'll not talk about him um, no. but, um oh there was i had a, there was a great guy who came to on that top there was a great guy who came and did a talk in an, an environmental justice activist from america who came and talked in lec once and he said that he didn't he wouldn't refer to it was like the whole voldemort thing in harry potter he right. wouldn't refer to Donald trump by name he was like president whatever number he is i can't remember yeah. 40 something. 45 um, yeah yeah yeah, exactly. I've, I've heard people do that too. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we maybe we should start doing the same for both. So, yeah, we don't talk about Boris here. We just <laughs> we don't talk about Boris our Boris our Boris. great prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, like when when a flood happens, it's very newsworthy, and all the media turns up, and and but then rapidly they go again, you know, and you totally so you don't hear any more about those people whose lives and homes are affected but obviously um something we knew from previous floods was that um people can be out of their homes for up to two years you know after a flood like living in the caravan on the drive or in a rented house or like living in a living in a house that's really damaged by flood like living upstairs or something and while the repairs mm -hmm. take place and we just wanted to know like what were people's lives like during that time and yeah obviously it's you know, it's pretty horrendous on because you're yeah. trying to like you're trying to kind of be it's like you know um i mean everyone watch people like watching things like grand designs don't they because you know you, you get to, to to laugh at the stress of everyone but you know those are people who've who've like voluntarily chosen often with quite a lot of financial resources to kind of remake their homes but these are people who suddenly like who suddenly become project managers on a house renovation project with no you know without any wanting to do that at all um a lot of stuff has been lost like things really sentimental stuff like kind of old family photos or furniture yeah, no, sure. um yeah and in the middle of all this like as well as having to you know like project manage the repairs to your home you're having to try and do like normal everyday family life which you know care features highly in that doesn't it like you're trying to mm -hmm. you're kind of still got to do your cooking and your washing and kind of look after your kids and get them to school and yeah yeah just um, in a way it kind of upends the um was a abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs thing the the pyramid with um mm -hmm. with sort of what humans need to to reach um was a self-actualization uh and yep. one of those first things is those kind of physical needs that you need like food air water but also shelter mm -hmm. i think featured among those principal ones we need mm -hmm. a, a secure permanent shelter that we i think to be able to plan things and and that's that's so important but unfortunately i guess doesn't like you say it doesn't feature on the news cycle no no not at all and i mean you know the other things and one of the things that um you know i know you had gordon on the other day that that was um he was really interested in i think is this idea that you know actually this this relates i suppose to what we've been talking about about those sort of like networks of care between people that actually mm -hmm. some of the people that were worst impacted by the floods were people who weren't actually flooded themselves so you had all of the frontline really? workers mm -hmm. i mean that's that's really obviously in covid now that's really pertinent right is that right yeah you know but in got, terms of floods yeah. how how so so i mean you had people who were obviously um who were kind of community workers who had to go out and support like flooded residents and suddenly they've got um you know obviously not only have they got a huge workload but they've got everyone's emotions so there was a lot of obviously anger mm -hmm. and grief and kind of you know they're so they're taking on all of that um and having to do you know like all of their look after their own family and stuff as well um and then you had like we had one resident as well who told us um so we have people keeping diaries for us and her story was incredible because she had so they they weren't flooded but her elderly mother-in-law was flooded 
and so she came to live with them for a bit and you know anyone who's, who's had you know like family relatives live with them for an extended yeah. period of time but that gets quite tense um yeah, yeah. But also you know when when her mother-in-law was finally able to go home like and her house had been repaired they found that so she started having really bad memory loss issues because her house was so different you know like all of that practical competence right. that you know, when you're old like she'd lived with the same stuff for like 60 years or something and now yeah. she was walking into a house that was modern she didn't know how to do anything she didn't know where anything was it was really unsettling for her so um yeah our diarist like her life was kind of really turned upside down by like trying to support her mother-in-law and her own family like during this kind of transition um and i think you know again that's really pertinent to think about now in terms of i'm so aware that with COVID where people are at is very different, you know, depending on mm. some people, some people have had a great time during lockdown. Other people yeah. have, you know, like it's been really impossible because of, um, yeah. And, you know, even in, in my own house, like when, you know, lockdown, we were really lucky was, was kind of fine for us because there were, we had like a two to one adult child ratio in a garden and stuff. But even mm. when it partially lifted and like my husband went back to work, obviously I'm still trying to do my work and look after my son and, make sure he doesn't spend all his time in front of a screen and that we do nice things together. So that was a real squeeze. So, you know, you kind of like a shift in one thing of the system, like mm -hmm. really has an impact elsewhere always. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of people get lost in the statistics and the, the sort of the numbers around these issues, be it floods or, or COVID. Mm -hmm. But I think these human stories are so important, not just to, to really ground us in the, in the reality of what's happening but also you know like we were saying about um about theoretical and practical knowledge stuff that mm -hmm. this is a form of practical knowledge it's a form of uh, experience um and i think yeah. i think it ought to be respected uh it you know it ought to inform the statistics as well and like you say with covid i i mean you know we're slightly getting off track of, of the climate stuff but but i think it's an important point to 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 make is that the story we we will maybe look at the numbers of covid and think hey it wasn't that bad uh, in the end look at compared to these diseases or this event mm -hmm. like you know but every single healthcare worker that i've talked to um quite i've got a few friends that are in that sector my mom works in in pharma and and, mm -hmm. and you know i've got some friends that work with people in healthcare and 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 the, and the nhs for example or in belgium and the one word that they come up with is that they're tired. They are yeah. absolutely exhausted. It's, it's an unending absolutely. sort of series of waves of, of, of people that, that come in to the emergency and, and there's no beds and there's no like protective equipment. And, and it's the yeah. same stories everywhere. And I, I'm really scared personally that after this, we will, sort of hailed our responses as great because it you know because look at these numbers but then yeah. you talk to the people actually on the ground and maybe we've had a good time like you say but but they've they've gone through one of the, possibly one of the most traumatic periods of their life absolutely absolutely and i guess you know there, there is obviously there is a parallel with climate change there isn't there and i'm sure there are many mm. but you know that whole thing that you know as you mentioned with the with your example of the cook islands and what like it's the impacts of it aren't evenly distributed and you know there will be some people that you know some some people that are maybe able to you know ultimately i believe everyone is and everyone will be affected but you know still the impacts will be felt kind of quite a lot sooner in some places in some mm -hmm. communities um 
so yeah and there are people who like you say a lot of people say oh climate change isn't that tangible but they're you know as you said in the example just now in in the cook islands and in the arctic there are people who, it's like extremely tangible so yeah yeah um yeah yeah and and i think that as well in terms of floods um again this kind of relates to my fear of it kind of being um put aside because of the numbers uh you know floods I think Gordon said that sometimes the floods can only be maybe like 20, 30 centimeters high in, in terms of uh, the water that comes into the houses. And it still has huge effects on the, on the house, on the foundations and such. It destroys everything just by having a, you know, that bit of water for that long of an amount of time. So absolutely, I think that's also something I'm scared of is people kind of looking at the numbers and, and thinking, oh, well, the floods haven't been getting that much worse. Like, look, it's just... A little bit worse and but but the human cost is so huge um and, and especially i remember gordon talking about insurance companies and, and people's fights with insurance companies mm -hmm. that was quite poignant um I, I think it seems like the uk has a bit of work to do on the floods insurance side absolutely absolutely yeah and as you say i mean this problem isn't isn't going to go away like anytime soon i mean you know i'm trying to think like just in the just in the time since we've um since we did that project you know in, in after the floods in hull like they've been is it like um cockermouth you know just locally in the lake in cumbria is flooded like three like really badly three times you know and it's just really? that and yeah as you say it's that thing about um you know and as as we know from you know from the, the project that we did it's that knock-on impact on people's lives so you know you're talking about maybe up to two years of disruption and mm -hmm. um you know if you think about and the all the emotional impacts of that on your you know kind of your mental and physical health and everything that goes on if you think about that every time you're going to have a flood i mean that's just not sustainable yeah so yeah yeah and i guess this um brings us on to a final sort of topic which is um that climate change is an intersectional issue that really brings all these different topics together into into one entangled mess um, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day you know we live on a planet that is a tangled mess of things uh, yes. you can't you can we can't isolate variables um, no. realistically everything works within each other into what at least used to be i guess a coherent system <laughs> until mm -hmm humanity changed this so badly that now it's facing the consequences of those incoherences i guess that's mm -hmm. the best way to i think I, I i can find to explain climate change in relatively simple terms um mm -hmm. and and linked to this idea of of intersectionality that everything is affected and affects climate change you said that you previously that you had encountered this in your research around parenting and around mm -hmm. care for I guess this kind of relates as well to the discussion about care that we had. Absolutely. I mean, funny enough, I've been talking to Nigel Clark quite a lot about this recently, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, because he's written a paper on, you know, if you think about in many ways, like he's written a paper about like the crisis of natality. So that, in a, you know, and that's okay. what, you know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, this idea that I suppose if, if we're talking about human survival, then sort of like, I guess the primary definition of that is our ability to keep ourselves alive, right? You know, so there is yeah, a, so yeah. parenting is like a link between the generations in, in that way. Um, and I certainly know, you know, as well, like the sort of, the angle that I've looked at it from, which is sort of more, um, I guess, like emotional and effectual geographies. I mean, I don't know if you saw the, um, when was it? Was it like a year ago, 18 months ago, like the David Attenborough BBC climate change kind of documentary, you know, which the mm -hmm. famous one. Um, 
And I guess, you know, like for me, like I was watching that and one of the things that, I don't know, maybe it's the same for you too, but that I find so strange in this whole space is that, you know, I spend like the vast majority of my waking moments kind of thinking about these things and worrying about them. And like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a reality for me. And yeah, like, you know, my friends and relatives who work in other jobs, it just very rarely ever kind of enters into their consciousness, mm-hmm. which is what, which is kind of, I find is really scary in, in many yeah. ways. But so that, so I was watching that documentary and thinking, oh, you know, that's like, I was thinking, yeah, I know all this. And, and there's, you know, Mike Berners-Lee doing his great quotes. And it's like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. these are facts that I know. But then it got to the bit where the flying foxes in Australia, and if you saw that, it was, they had a massive... I haven't, I haven't seen you know. this, so I'll have to watch that film, but yeah. Yeah, there's a scene where, and, and again, this relates to what we're saying about climate change kind of being like really tangible right now. There's a massive heat wave in Australia somewhere, like over 40 degrees. And... The flying foxes, you know, the little um, the little creatures that they're really well adapted to, obviously, to normally to dealing with heat. But this was just mm-hmm. too much. You know, it's too hot, and they couldn't. And the um, there's a scene where, like, the basically like loads of the parents, loads of the mothers died, like they just fell out of the tree because it was too hot. And you could, and they the conservation workers were going to try and like save. They were going and bottle feeding the babies, and all you could hear was like the sounds of the babies like crying for their mothers, and it just had me in like floods of tears. Um, because mm. you know, like being, uh, no, you know, even no, though no. I knew intellectually all of that stuff, like that experience mm. about like I think I'm a mom and like my son, and just that thought of just horrific, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think parenting is maybe you know I've been thinking about maybe parenting is a way to also think about our solidarity with other species, and you know, mm. with um, and yeah, parents when you think about when you're parenting is work of care you know and it's like it feels like we also now need to be able to parent the earth and it's parenting you know it's parenting me at the same time there's that reciprocal relationship of care once again um and yeah when you mention i know we we talked about it a lot already but you know climate change isn't just a practical issue it's kind of like you know we are seeing right now you know as as with covid like huge amounts of anger and fear and grief and like all of this stuff and and we need to somehow be able to like hold that you know so the first thing is we've got to kind of um be able to like care for yeah like i say care for ourselves but that also um involves caring for each other and caring for the earth that we're on in like the very specific local context that we encounter this in Mm -hmm. you know and kind of and find a way somehow of doing that through the most like you know, I mean, I guess that's how, like, I try and bring it back to, like, I had um, a friend who said that he, you know, he was like, okay, what's the, you know, in, in all these complex situations, I've really tried to bring it back to, he was like, okay, what's the, what's the caring thing to do in this situation? And it, and that's not just an intellectual thing, you know, that's where it comes back to this. Um, that's why I feel like this climate change is not just work of the head, it's also work of the heart mm-hmm. and the hands. And we have yeah. to be able to do all three elements um, to, to kind of, to make our way through, I think. Yeah, I, I see a lot of that that grief and anger and sadness as well in in like climate marches and mm. and sort of uh, you know with activist groups, I guess, but also mm. also with academia. I mean, we've we've talked to you know you're you're the ninth person that we talk to now, and and mm. in this even short time that we've done it, I can I've very much felt that frustration sometimes or or kind of passion in in a lot of people that we've talked to. Um, but I wonder what the best way then, I guess this can be a good way to, for us to, to, to close up, but what do you think is the best way then to handle those negative emotions in a way that's maybe constructive and, and 
and I guess what's the best way to to take care of ourselves and as well as the planet? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know the first step. I think it's crucial. I think the first step is just to acknowledge them, you know, and and actually to be able to talk about them more because, as you say, like we have, you know, and you, you you've just interviewed, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of academics on this as well. And, you know, I know, like I've seen colleagues who say, I, I don't sleep at night sometimes, you know, because of this stuff. But if they're obviously in a radio interview about it, then that's not what you talk about. You talk about the science and the yeah. numbers and like what's happening here. But actually, that's our, you know, and I think Greta Thunberg's been really good on this stuff as well. It's like, what is our, you know, like this is this is something that is that we care passionately about. And we need yeah. to like allow that to be you know, we need to acknowledge that to ourselves and be able to share it with others. And it's time to get emotional in a sense. Yeah, it is. It is because that's, you know, those are those are, those feelings. They're telling us something, you know, that's a yeah. we're kind of. Yeah. And in just the same way as like we need to be able to get to read the natural world better in terms of like, you know, like I said, that's, that comes back to the permaculture thing again, you know, and observing what is it doing and what's it trying to do here and how can I work with that like more carefully. So but we also need to like yeah what what are our emotions telling us in this scenario and how can we kind of yeah how can but also how can we deal with that how can we deal with that productively so again it's and that i guess this would open up a whole bit you know i would argue that that just having a rant on social media is not like a a very productive way of doing that because it just you know we need to find a way of like yeah that's a really difficult emotion and we've got to feel it and we've got to own it but we've also got to be able to yeah like work with that positively there's some great uh, quotes from i think like mindfulness teachers who talk about um oh, this one being about anger is like a it's not a negative thing it's like the there's a metaphor of this pot that cooking potatoes and it's like anger is the mm-hmm. you know but you have to sit yeah. with you can't just like let it explode you've got to like yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got <laughs> so, to let yeah, the, the air out a little bit a little bit yeah exactly yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense and i i think that's that's a sort of good tip in a sense for for everyone listening as well is to not the people have an easy time kind of getting lost in in the the negativity of it all mm-hmm. um that's why i appreciate films such as you know the one that i mentioned before um tomorrow mm-hmm. which is is so much more positive and i think it's important to turn to not forget and not lose track of the anger and the frustration mm-hmm. but Absolutely. to to understand in a way that we can't like we can't on our own change the entire world and the entire way that every, everything works, but that we can change our own back, back garden. We can mm-hmm. change our own neighborhood and our own town and our own cities kind of way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And then we can, you know, link up with people who do the same and who, who change their own cities and et cetera, and then build networks and, and Absolutely. kind of change the world in that way, you know, have a, a bigger impact. And those things are also like they're they're wonderfully tangible you know that thing about it is really rewarding you know because there is yeah there's, there is all this anger and the fear and that's fine and that, that that has to be there and that's a motivation for it as well but like you say when you go and grow something in your garden or you kind of like um i've got a lot of friends as well that are into sort of slow fashion when you repair some clothing or something, and you're like i made that i did that that was a really you know yeah, like there's yeah. a real sense of satisfaction and i made a difference you know a, you can kind of see where you've been and you can kind of, you know, or you do something nice for a neighbor. It's like those things are really tangible and those things will carry us through and we need to kind of hold on to that as well. Yeah. I yeah. I think this, 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 it's a whole conversation about reconnection and healing and, and, and like you said, care. Dr. Rebecca Whittle, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having it's me. Really great. And uh, I hope to see more of your work and, and hopefully 
I'll come and visit Scotch Quarry Park, maybe in my graduating gown or something. Once please I'm do. back in Please Lancaster. do. Take a graduation <laughs> selfie in the garden. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, will do. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.